Welcome to season three of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, behavior scientist, and burnout survivor. I interview DEI leadership and mental health experts to uncover burnout solutions at the individual, family, work, and cultural levels. When mums thrive, the world benefits. Please take a moment to check out my website at drjacquelinekerr.com. Click on the free guides button and find solutions for burnout that support individual team and organizational change. If you're worried about regrettable turnover and quiet quitting, but already have too much on your plate, I can provide a comprehensive roadmap to help you improve wellness, belonging, and engagement through an overarching burnout prevention strategy. So you can have thriving, diverse leadership teams. Debbie Kern and Kate Rodzka-Zuma wrote the book, Humanity Works Better. It summarizes their approach to coaching companies towards more meaningful connection and how to develop skills to improve human interactions. Their book and conversation is filled of so many examples of scenarios and companies where coaching individuals and teams to take on different perspectives and different levels of awareness improve connection. And in many situations, recognizing the exhaustion in the room has been key to successful progress. I hope you learn as much from this conversation as I did. I'm Debbie Cohen. I am a mother of two. My daughter is just about to turn 40 and my son is almost 38. And when I had them, I was a preschool teacher and they attended the co-op at Stanford with me where I taught and they went to school. So I was very fortunate in my early days to have great childcare and a great job. And then I noticed I didn't have enough gas in my tank to be a good mom and a great teacher. And so I left the classroom and moved into administration. And that really began my ascent. I went on to direct and build a number of childcare centers. I was very active in the early days of the work-life efforts inside companies. As a consultant, I became a single mom at that time. And when the kids were about 10 and 12, I realized they needed me to be more present than I was. And so I quit my job, became a consultant on my own. So I had some more flexibility. Um, and along the way, I ended up being hired by Time Warner in New York to head their work-life efforts. The kids were in college and my husband and I made the move to New York and had great adventure there. And that took me into HR as a career, which is how I hit up with Kate. So a full journey from early years as a young working mom to a single parent to somebody who actually has had a very fabulous and very well-rounded, very grateful for my career. Thank you so much. That's such a wonderful introduction. And again, such a mix of experiences that I'm sure you bring. As caregivers, we do get formed to have such strengths in the workplace. So thanks for those details. Kate, go ahead and introduce yourself. Thank you. Yeah, I'm Kate Rescue Zoomer, and I am one of the co-founders of Humanity Works and one of the co-authors of Humanity Works Better with Debbie. And I had a different journey. I did not get married until I was much later in life. I was in my 40s, mid-40s. And I met my husband, George, who had two daughters from a previous marriage. 
And I have adopted the phrase that Debbie has introduced me to, which is I'm a bonus mom as opposed to a stepmom because I'm not a big fan of that phrase. And, and so I am the bonus mom to two daughters. And, and so that's just been a wonderful journey. Really, I think we've all embraced the bonusness of having each other in our lives. I started out at Cambridge University getting a master's in English lit because I thought I wanted to teach English at the collegiate level and get my doctorate. And then I was like, I need to get out of the classroom and into life. So that led me into the advertising industry where I had a 15 year career. Then I got burnt out there. So more on that later. And I became a coach when nobody knew what a coach was. So back in 2003 is when I started coach training and it's just been an amazing journey. And as soon as I started learning some of these coaching skills, That is where I thought, man, organizations and people that are working within organizations would do so much better to be reminded of some of these skills. Which So I've been on that path really since 2003 and met Debbie along the way. And we've been partnering and working together on and off for the last 12 years. So it's been wonderful. Wonderful. Thanks so much. And another journey that I can relate to, I did French and philosophy as my degree and then went into advertising. So then much later, I then moved and went back into academia and did sciences, having really not done them for so long. But when you discover a passion, the edge learning side of it is less of a problem when you just so want to do the thing, which for me was public health. But I learned a lot from my advertising days in terms of stress, for sure. Oh my goodness. I could feel my blood pressure rise in that job, like physically. Uh, So let's delve into a few more stories of either motherhood or burnout or the combination of the two where you really were struggling, because it really helps women to know that they're not alone, but also to hear these kind of different experiences of how burnout affected the person or how they experienced it in terms of symptoms, how long the recovery was, because I find a lot of listeners and myself included, didn't know I was burnt out at the time. So it's so helpful to hear a few more details about that. Yeah, I'll jump in. Really, I had a very successful career at Ogilvy and Mather Advertising Agency in New York. And I had an incredibly supportive work environment there. We were doing another podcast with somebody else and they were pecking around for where organizations were not supportive of their people. And I got to tell you, I did not have that experience at all. I lost my mom while I was working there. And They worked with me and were flexible with me. It was just an amazing career there. But as you can potentially relate, Jacqueline, I was like, I can't have this argument anymore. I can't try to convince the creatives that it can't be so creative that people won't know what we're advertising. And I can't have this conversation with the clients who want to make it more functional that people are going to change the channel. They're not going to actually watch the commercial. It was like, that was the conversation that I was burnt out having. And I just thought, I just can't, I can't do it anymore. And it was such an intense job. I was in strategic planning. It was such an intense job that I didn't even know what was happening next for me. I just knew that I couldn't figure it out and work. And I was single at the time and I'd saved a whole bunch of money to redo my kitchen. And I thought, screw my kitchen. (laughs) I'm going to redo my life. And I decided to take some time off, which then turned into a lot longer. 9-11 actually happened during the time that I was off. And so that was a whole other 
journey of being without a career during 9-11 as New York City and really the country and the world was just slammed into that situation. But I got very frugal and did a bunch of freelancing and did it. So I think it was this, that learning within, within yourself and listening to that whisper within you that's saying, I've had enough and I don't know what's next. And so then ended up freelancing for another two, three years while I put myself through coach training and paid my mortgage and did all of those things that I had to do. I didn't have the financial flexibility of just quitting work and putting my hands up in the air. I still had bills to pay and it was just me. I didn't have anybody else to lean into, but it certainly makes you more conscious of what it is you are choosing and deciding to do. And that was a little bit of my journey. Yeah, I think for me, I was listening to Kate and what was hearkening in my head was there's a difference in my career transitions around burnout, around professional progression. And I'm one of those type A's. I want more. I want to do it well. And when I filter out the different transitions of my career and the reasons for them, when it was about burnout, it was because a value I hold that I might have been unconscious of at the moment was being just obliterated. And part of that was my doing, letting it happen or being unconscious of it. And so there are two times in my career. One was I mentioned in my introduction when I had two young kids and was teaching in the classroom. And I remember feeling like not being my best at any of this. And the value underneath that is I wasn't being present. I wasn't feeling as if I could be present in the way that I wanted with the people who mattered to me, if that was my children and my family, or if that was the children and their families in the classroom. The other big moment of burnout was one of my chief people officer roles. And I hold the world record for transitioning the most CEOs in the shortest period of time. People can Google me to figure out what company that was. And I remember people there saying to me, oh God, please don't leave. Like you are the anchor, don't leave. And I needed to leave, right? And I wasn't really being present for them in a way that was true and honest to myself. And I remember when I left finally saying enough that present became my word of the year because I remember the people who were most important to me to be present with, my friends and my family, I had not been because I was so preoccupied doing something that wasn't fulfilling me and because I was doing it for the wrong reasons. And those are big lessons on burnout for me. Those are great examples too. And I'm glad you mentioned that values conflict because that is actually in the list of kind of the six causes of burnout from Christine Maslach, a burnout expert. And it's one that a lot of people don't hear about. They will immediately just think of the overwork and that's what comes into people's minds first. But these values conflicts are really important too, because they wear you down. What I love about that, right, is the overwork is really about resentment, which is really underpinning a value that is being stepped on. And so when you start feeling that I'm resenting something here, either inside myself or about this situation, values are a really healthy place to look. We write about it in the book. Exactly. You have the whole chapter on values. Exactly. And even just that word resentment too, that's another symptom of burnout. So again, for listeners to be connecting with these words and going, okay, yeah, that is me too. 
Great. Let's talk a little bit about your clients first, and then we'll head into some of the details of the books. So how often is burnout an issue for the clients you work with? And how do you address it? And does it look different for working moms that you work with? At the end of this last year, Thanksgiving break, Christmas break, oh my gosh, everybody across our client base were just burnt out. Everybody had just had enough. They're all crawling over that end of the year, us included. That's exactly right. The thing was happening for us. This one is coming to mind for me in particular. We had training that was all set for the day. We knew the curriculum and what we were going to deliver. And everybody got on the phone and people were exhausted, just exhausted. You could feel it. You could just feel it. And Deb and I were masters at this. We feel it in the level three, the energy of the group. And so we just said, hey, before we jump in there, let's just check in with everybody. How is everybody doing? We just took the curriculum and pulled it aside. And then there's lots of ways for us to deliver the curriculum. And we did it, but through the lens of everybody being exhausted. So we still delivered it. We just didn't deliver it the way that was planned, right? because we could feel into everybody. We just needed to pause. We're big fans of that word. We're big fans of, hey, time out. What do you need right now? And giving people the space, the time to just pause, take a big deep breath and to really connect and talk to each other about what was really going on. You could feel the group uplift. The thing I want to point out is like when we work with clients, a client isn't often burned out, but by golly, their workforce might be. It was the year anniversary of the pandemic. People were hopeful that somehow on the year anniversary, something would be different. And we're about ready to approach year two. And that psychological impact of wanting and hoping something to be different than it is really in the middle of our model is you. And if something isn't right, the only thing you can change in that situation is yourself. And to be aware that something here is not working for me and think about what choices you have to alter it. And sometimes it's how you're thinking about the situation. And sometimes there's something significant systemically, but the roadblocks either in you or in the system or both. And that's often what we look at in the case that Kate was presenting. It was a lot of internal roadblock. There was nothing in the system that was keeping work from flowing. It was just a psychological sense of just being completely spent and nothing left in the tank and the power of a pause to be like, yeah, like that's really hard. Let's talk about that sort of collectively raised the whole. I feel like I've been hearing from that smush group that are in between the C-seed and doing so much for their team, but their performance criteria haven't changed. And they've been doing so much to try and help the mental health and all the other logistics of this changing uncertain times of their teams. And they are really burning out. And also you mentioned that level three listening, and we'll get into some of those details, but that's what I really liked about your book. You went into a training and you shifted because of your ability to hear what was needed. In the book, you gave the example of the group 
where you put them into two sides of the room and one side believed trust was earned and one side believed you gave trust. And there was a simple difference in the team because there was no trust. And that was the thing that was in the room. The elephant in the room was trust and you felt it through your level three listening. So again, that's what was so wonderful about the book. And you've given a different example here, examples of how you can use the skills and how they make a big difference when you use them to be able to actually address the problem. And like you say, the curriculum still gets delivered, but through a different lesson. And probably a more impactful lesson because you're meeting them at their point of need, not your need to deliver whatever you think your agenda is. Let the agenda go and step toward both your need and theirs and see. And then it had the bonus effect And now they've had an experience with that and they can start to do that with their own people. The plan is made up to begin with. Be willing to change the plan. That's important. And and that's true at work as a working mom, since that's our audience here. That is true if that is at work or at home. I know that there are so many of us, me included, who love to operate off the plan. But by golly, we don't get to control the plan because the plan involves other humans. And the sort of true essence of humanity is that interdependence that we have on one another and kind of leaning into that and figuring out what do I need to hold on to and what do I want to let go of? How might this thing that feels important to me look in a different way? Because that's what's needed right now. Um, I think and that agility to shift gears, let go, hold it lightly, know what's important and hold the rest lightly, I think really serves us Because well. again, sometimes that plan, that playbook has been handed to us and it isn't actually the one that we believe in either through social expectations or in the workplace. So I agree. And I think that's something I feel like with COVID, just showing our kids how we can be adaptable. The plan went out the window. So how do we adapt? And it keeps happening. Every time we seem to make plans, every time I make a play date for my daughter, one of the kids has come down with COVID or been exposed or something. So just constantly shifting those expectations. We had a mom in one of our training sessions and the energy again was just super flat. I will never forget this working mom. They had been renting this house for two years or three years or longer. And then the people decided to sell it. And so within the matter of, I don't know, it was like weeks, this woman working full time, two kids at school, need to get out of the house that they've been in for years, find a new place all during COVID. And I got to tell you, I was blown away by that story. And I think that is not uncommon in terms of all the balls that are in the air for working moms right now. I just, I don't know how they have done it. I don't know how they continue to do it. And what I love about that story and where it tied into the training is she got real focused on the outcome she was trying to create for herself and her family. And that was her guiding star, not what they needed to do, but how they wanted to be with each other and what outcome they wanted to create at the end of it. And they let that guide the journey. And It meant that they moved, I don't know, like a lot of miles, hundreds of miles away from where they were living. There was a disruption to the kids' schools, but the outcome that they wanted to achieve for themselves was worth whatever other disruption needed to happen in their lives, which was such a beautiful example. The story I was going to tell was about Melissa, my daughter, who has 
our two grandkids. And I remember back to disappointment, Jacqueline, her talking about how hard it was as a mom to watch her kids be disappointed over and over again. They couldn't have their own birthday parties, that they couldn't have a sleepover at our house because it wasn't safe for us to come out of our bubbles yet. And how hard is as a mom to watch your child be disappointed. And the shift that I saw with her and I think has benefited the kids. And it'll be interesting to see how the children of the pandemic evolve into grownups is I think it gave them greater resilience. They were able to adapt to things much differently and hold them lightly. Were they disappointed? They were, but the picture she sent of my grandson on his iPad talking video games with his buddies, which would not been permitted or allowed before, they found alternative ways to have connection, albeit differently. And I just think that showed a great deal of resolve, sometimes desperation, and just letting go of what it's supposed to look like and being able to figure out what's going to serve the kids and the family best. We all did the best we can. And I think that's something that I've really had to learn as the perfectionist over achiever side of me. When one of my coaches said to me, hey, by the way, it's okay if 50% of the days aren't great. Why do you expect every day to be the most amazing best day ever? And communicating that to my kids too, is that some days aren't great. That's okay. Because if we set up this expectation that we have to be happy 100% of the time, then we're going to fail. So I think in the same way is that the disappointment, yeah, half our plans aren't going to work out in life and half is okay. Nobody wants to be the average, but actually for me, they've been really helpful to let go of that overdrive and over perfection that wasn't even a hundred percent, like it's over the other side of a hundred percent. What comes up for me on that one is this thing that we react to and respond to is, is this idea that we have shaped identities that are part of how we were brought up and how we were socialized. Mine, I'm going to date myself here in a minute. I remember when I got married, you know, women wore stockings and high heels and petticoats and dresses and pearls all day long. And the house was perfect. Allegedly, the dinner was on the table. It was of an era and a time that no longer is relevant. But that was what I grew up with. That was my grandmother. That's what I remember. But that wasn't who I was or was going to be. And it took a little bit of confronting that and choosing who I wanted to be and how I wanted to live my life and back to values. What was important about that to be able to not have to stand in that image? That being said, if my in-laws are coming over, I still want the house to be cleaned and picked up. Okay, so let's really get into the book for folks that haven't yet had a chance to read it and are really interested in dipping into it too. Can you describe the five practices and the four mindset shifts that you recommend in your book and also with the work you do with companies? The book is called Humanity Works Better, Five Practices to Lead with Awareness, Choice, and the Courage to Change People Are productivity is about people, right? So that's the problem that we start off. And then we talk about these four mindsets. What is the outcome that you want to create in any situation? And it's a growth mindset. How do I want these kids to be as a result at the end of this pandemic, right? And if you can articulate that horizon, how you start to show up differently, even in the doing and the trying to get to that horizon. And the other one we were just talking about is navigating resistance 
internal resistance can be a big part of that. Your own saboteurs, right? That part of you that wants to be perfect, that doesn't want to fail. We talk about that in the mindset of resistance and the resistance can be internal, but it can also be resistance that you have towards an idea, towards another person, towards a particular project. But another one is just how do you start to navigate resistance and what are some skills and tools that can help you with that? And then the last two mindsets are boundaries. We really have this fundamental belief that boundaries are there to let people in not keep people out, but you have to know what is important to you in order to be able to do that. And then the last one, which is one that we're very fond of, which is meaningful connections. And that really is the doing of work tends to be very self-focused. What am I trying to get done? What am I trying to achieve, make happen? But the truth of the matter is, as you are working in an organization over time, you've really got to shift that thinking to actually include the collective whole. What do other people around you need? How together can you get all of those things done? So trying to widen that lens from yourself to the other people that are around you. And this is really the big shift that we're seeing in the workforce right now with the great resignation is people are looking for that meaningful connection, both within themselves, what gives them purpose, and then how does that purpose come to life inside this place where they're working? And that's going to be work that's going to happen on both the individual level and the organizational level for the next several years. There's no magic panacea for any of this. It's transformational work that's going to happen on both sides of the equation. And I think one of the parts of what you're describing there, Kate, as well, in terms of what do you want? I feel like not many mothers are asking themselves that question. Like we're so putting our needs aside and attending to other people's needs. And that's really was where I started as well, because I couldn't answer that question. I don't think I could even answer the question, what are my values? I couldn't answer, what did I want? I went through coaching and all these questions are coming up and I'm just like, feeling very lost and clueless really about the whole thing. But I think one of the things that was really helpful to me was when I was reading a book on parenting, the book your parents should have read, but it really talked about allowing your children to have and express emotions because they were the guide to what they wanted. And when I made that connection then for myself, okay, I don't allow myself to express or feel emotions. So I have no idea what I want. So when that all started to connect and it made me value emotions in a different way, that really helped me tap into that. What do I want and what are those outcomes? I love that. There is a place where in this section of outcome creating, we say we want you to be an outcome creating versus problem reacting. And I love that word reacting because this is where we all go when things are happening that we don't like around us. We go into that reactive mode. And there's three primary ways of reacting. You can become super controlling, you can become super complying, or you can become protecting and protecting are the people that are going to create distance. They're going to protect themselves. And so it's not that you're not going to go there. You are going to go there. So the first step is to understand that you are going to go there. And the second step is, okay, I don't really want to be here. How do I get myself out of this? What is the bigger outcome that I'm wanting to create for myself? And I think that we all have these Grand Canyons. I remember a coach describing that as like self-belief was going to always be my Grand Canyon. And the question is, how far did I fall into it? And how quickly did I get out of it? That's right. And that's the awareness part, right? It starts with us. 
What didn't we like about it? We could have spin and make the other person wrong and blame the world, but pausing and being like, what didn't we like about that? And take ownership of it and then choose a different path forward is just a practice that we use all the time which sort of guides us right into the five practices. Yeah, go ahead, Debbie. Tell us about those. Thank you. Kate, how about if we do it in tandem? The first one and the model, we start with this one called creating safety. And when we talk about creating safety, it really is up to you to create safety for yourself, for the people around you. And we get that there is trauma that people are bringing into the workplace, that raising your hand or putting your voice in doesn't always feel safe. And so there's some things that we talk about in the book on how to find allies and people to help say what's not needed. But we're just a big believer that creating safety manifests trust. And trust is the byproduct of safety. It is a productivity tool. People knew how to, would we have more of it created? And the way that we believe trust is created for yourself and for those around you is by creating safety. And the skill that we offer there, although it's super packed, can be used anywhere, three levels of listening. What's important to me? What's important about it to the others? And what's not being said that may need to be voiced? Like the example of people being warned, overtaxed and burned out. And creating safety, the kind of, it's up to you, right? If someone just was bold enough to be able to say, gosh, this feels really scary. This feels really vulnerable. And I'm always so grateful for people that are willing to ask for that. And I go, wow, then that's all of our job. What do we need to do this work? Why do we think this is important? And I really do think it's up to each of us, regardless of positional power, to take a stand for this doesn't feel safe. And what I love about that example, Kate, is as a facilitator, your resistance could have immediately been triggered, right? Oh my gosh, they're questioning what we're doing here. And where Kate went with that is this is a gift, back to mindset, meaningful connections. This is a gift. If one person is thinking this, probably other people are too. So let's just go there and see how to take that. And she still had an outcome she was trying to achieve with the training. How do we move the group there by meeting them where they are instead of dragging them where we want to go? The second one is working together. And this is about, gosh, it is hard to work with other people. There are conflicting agendas. There are conflicting ideas about the best way forward. And part of what we say is when you're working together with other people, that you actually need to get curious about what is happening over there. And how do you put what you need over here for a minute and just get super curious about what are the needs going on over there? What's happening for them? And the sort of phrase we use is that when you're working together with other people, it's not about you right? And we connect this practice with the productivity of resilience, right? The skill that we actually teach you is what perspective are you standing in about this other person, about this project, whatever. And maybe you need to step into a different perspective and then that will actually help you to unlock what's going on with the people around you. I'm over here laughing inside my head because as a working mom, we've all had that moment where we're trying to get out the door and the kid won't put on their shoes. And our need at that moment is to get in the car because we need to get to work or the doctor's appointment or wherever on time. And the kid has a different point of need, which might be, we don't know what, because we tend to step right over that. But taking a beat and being like, what's going on for them? Maybe they're not ready to 
leave that toy. Maybe they were in the middle of something. Maybe they just want to feel your love and have you put that shoe on for them, even though they're completely capable. Like those are all perspectives of just take a breath. What might be happening over there? And if you meet them there, how does your collective objective get met? And that's the power of us in any relationship of our life with working together is um, how do we notice what's happening over there and meet them there? It's not about you. It's all about them and working together. And can I say that example of a pause? I'll try and tell this story. It's rather emotional. So during the pandemic, my daughter really struggled to get schoolwork done. She was in first grade and the teacher explained to me, actually her reason for being at school is social. She'll do anything because she's surrounded by people. It's not the academic thing itself that motivates her. So anyway, I'm there struggling with her to do any of the worksheets or anything in the pandemic. But one day she had to write a letter to herself. That was the exercise. And she wrote, Dear Catherine, I miss you. Kiss, kiss. And the whole page was like kisses. And I was just like furious. I'm like, how is this completing this worksheet in my head? Luckily, this is ridiculous. You've written three words. I miss you. And then I stopped and I went, Kat, what do you mean? What do you miss about yourself? What does this mean? Rather than there's only three words. I stopped. I paused. And she said, I miss myself at school. I miss who I was at school. And oh my goodness, I just was like, oh my goodness, I had just no idea. And that's when I connected with her teacher again. And so can you help me understand like who she is at school? Because you don't see it. And yeah, I was just, thank right. God. And then you, usually you can get through what you need too much quicker, or you get there in a different way or a different path. But what you've created along the way is a important connection in a healthy relationship. And also that she was able to explain her emotions. She has so much emotional intelligence, which I then said to her, thank you for sharing that. This is a real strength you have in being able to explain these things and to be able to say it. It's a great example too. I think Jacqueline about what happens, and I'll just use myself as a working mom in the workplace. We think everybody else understands what's happening for us. And that they should care. I remember coaching lots of moms are on alternative work arrangements and they're like, I have all this needs. And I'm like, okay, what's the need over here in the workplace? And if you can address it from a mutual resolution and not a one-sided equation, you are a working mom and you're an employee in the workplace. And both of those things hold true. I love the pausing because if we put our own selves in the shoe of your daughter, seeking to be understood in part is hoping that somebody will ask the question, what does that mean for you? I was thinking it was also, it was a perfect example of a perspective shift. So you were in that perspective of, oh my gosh, that was only three words. That's not right. And you were like, hang on a minute. You actually used another skill of ours. Let me get curious about this. And we'll talk about that in terms of dare not to know, but you got curious with her and that actually you shifted the perspective that you were in about this. Maybe there's something else I need to learn here about Catherine. So it was a perfect example in a really short period of time, you starting in one perspective and very quickly shifting to another. Third practice in the book is one of my favorites. And we've talked about it already, which is about claiming your values. And claiming your values about knowing what's important to you. And that helps you create alignment for yourself and for others about how you want to be in this world, not what you're going to do, but who do you want to be? And it helps you aim all of your activities, your energy 
toward being the person that you want to be while you're doing the doing of your life. If it's a mother, a partner, a child to somebody else, we're certainly dealing with that as aging parents. And how do we want to be with our parents in the decline of their life? It's a place to go back to your values and live into them. Um, and the skill that we actually talk about there is acknowledgement. And so the skill is really acknowledging that within yourself. And it's a really great practice to acknowledge that in other people. As working moms, the place to look, I would say, is when you've done that work, then look at your workplace and see where there is alignment between what is important to you and how that may be being expressed. There will probably be a plaque on a wall or a platitude in a employee handout about stuff, if it's not being lived in the way that feels in alignment to you, look first to yourself. What happens if you start living it aligned to what that expression looks like? There's probably an ERG somewhere, other working moms. What if you all start talking about what would it look like to live this? You are part of the culture living. Give voice to what's important and why and see what happens. And if it doesn't shift, you might not be in the right place for you to be at your best. The next practice is called owning your impact. This is one you can see as we're progressing that this is really about you from in a leadership position. So we're all having an impact all the time with the people around us. In our language, we say some of that is intended and some of that is unintended. You've said something, maybe a joke, and it came out the wrong way and landed the wrong way with the room, that's going to happen. But what do you want to do in terms of owning that impact? Because here we say you're responsible for what you're creating around you. And particularly as your teams start to get bigger, as you're actually working with more people across the way, how do you want to take up some accountability for the impact that you are creating? And related to what Deb was just talking about, are you actually having the impact that you want or not? And if you're not, this is another place to unpack that a little bit. You know, working parent thing, one of the things that's coming up for me is the kids were teenagers. And when they're teenagers, they have this tendency to get a little lippy with you. That's developmentally appropriate, but it isn't fun as a parent. And kids would lip off at me and I'm like, it's not okay to talk to me that way. I want you to turn around, take a breath and then turn back around and say it to me a different way that I can hear it. But if they said something I didn't like, unbeknownst to me, one eyebrow would raise involuntarily. And Melissa, firstborn, a little bit more sensitive, would be like, mom, you're screaming at us. And I'm like, I'm not screaming. She's like, your eyebrow is up, right? An unintended impact. Like I've since learned a little bit more custody of the face, but in those days I didn't have it. And she'd be like, mom, you're yelling at us. And I'm like, I doesn't feel like a yell. She's like, your eyebrow is up. So that was like an unintended impact in a parenting role. And we will have them. We'll be short with our kids. We'll think that we're setting a boundary that feels in a different kind of way and noticing we are the leader of our lives, no matter where we are and no matter what our positional authority is. And we all create impacts intended or not. And the only way we know about our impact is through feedback. Yeah. And here's what I would say is that on that last piece on impact is a really simple question to play with, to live into, to ponder is who do you want to be? Just play with that. See what comes up. And I love that you use that. Where I come from is behavior change science. And the very first question is, 
who do I want to be? Because it's really important that the thing that you're trying to do is aligned with who you want to be. So for example, if the thing you want to do is self-promote more, for example, one of my guests talked about that thinking that we need to gain that as a skill, particularly moms and women in the workplace. The thing I want to be is I want to be appreciated for what I do. So that makes sense to me, even if the idea of self-promotion is extremely uncomfortable. So you step into that first feeling of, yeah, I do actually want to be appreciated for my work. So how am I going to get there? And people talk about that a lot in the health context too, because again, what is it you want to be? And often for us, the work we did was often with older adults. And it wasn't that they necessarily wanted to be healthy, but what they wanted to be able to do and the things were will be with their grandkids in an active way where does it match with your identity this is my identity as an active fun grandma who can partake so that's quite different yeah this is one of those things that gosh if we could change this in leadership the world of leadership and the world of being a leader in our lives this would be the one i think in terms of being a working mom and being a mom you want to protect your kids you want to know what's going on but the truth of the matter is we don't. We can't know everything. That's pretty obvious. And so we talk about daring not to know is the practice of surrender. What's it like to admit, gosh, that's a really good question. I don't know. That is both vulnerable work and exciting work in my world. So, because I think when you have the courage to say, gosh, I don't know how to move this team forward. I'm not entirely sure that opens up the door to participation to the people around you. And it's more authentic, right? Because if it's really true for you, and the phrase we have there is you're leading the way, you're actually showing other people what it's like to say, gosh, I think we could go forward in this direction, but I want to know what you all think. And what that does is it actually creates more of that engagement. That's the productivity practice that we actually connect to this one. And the super skill here is curiosity. Just get curious. What do the people around you see and know? Because just like with perspective, they have a different perspective on it because of where they sit in the organization or on the team. They might be seeing things that you simply don't. You might have a blind spot there. We, as parents, we feel this need to know it all. We're sitting at the dinner table and my youngest, Brady, was going through a bit of a rebellion phase. And he asked if he could go to a party. And I was like a little like concerned about what was going to be happening at this party. And so leaning into curiosity, I said, so walk me through, like you're at the front door, what happens? And so he takes me through. And I said, and then when you see this happening inside this house, what will you do? And he's like, I'd probably go to the backyard. And I'd be like, and what would be happening there? And he's describing to me this environment where he's asking permission, can he go? And I'm not really sure he was asking permission. I think he was asking for a boundary that I wasn't going to set. And so at the end of this conversation, as he'd walk through this visualization of what was going to happen, who was going to be there, and thank goodness he was being honest, back to creating safety. I said, so what do you think? And he says, I don't think I should go to this party. And I'm like, okay, I think that's probably a good call. And so in that moment, I could have said, no, I don't know these people. The parents aren't going to be home. All those typical responses. But if part of what I was wanting at that moment, developmentally for him, was to help him grow and evolve And I didn't know the answer to this. Maybe the answer was yes, and it was okay, but he got to the right place. 
like walking through. Now, if he had said, yes, I want to go to that party, my next step probably would have been, here's some boundaries I need given what you've shared with me or no, because of what you've shared with me. But I don't know. I wouldn't know that if I hadn't opened the door to letting him add voice to this thing, I didn't know the answer to. I think that's such a good exercise. I could imagine that happen just being so useful in so many situations. Walk me through because then you're also seeing their observation perspective, but also their decision-making perspective. I would go into the backyard, right? I wouldn't stay in the house or whatever that is. Or if I saw this happening, I would feel like this. That's fantastic. You gain so much insight. As a parent, you've raised these babies from zero, negative, whatever, all the way through. And it is a process of letting go. And so this is one of those practices that I think would be just an amazing skill as a parenting skill to just step into the daring not to know, find out what they think, just like Deb was sharing in that example, and just be super curious about what do they think? What do they know? What are they feeling? Your example of Catherine in that, get curious, dare not to know, don't jump to that assumption or that conclusion. One of the things as we're coming to a conclusion that Kate and I spent a lot of time talking about when we named our company Humanity Works, when we named our book Humanity Works Better, was this passion to bring more humanity to the workplace. And we're like, pause, we live this stuff, folks, is what does it mean to be human? What is humanity? We use that word a lot right now out here in the vernacular. And humanity is actually the intersection of humans. It is this idea that none of us live this life alone. And if we are parenting, if we are in the workplace, there is an interdependency that we have on one another. And so the five practices, the super pack of skills, these are things that all humans can practice and live through with one another that we believe will actually yield more humanity, a greater way of being with one another. If we're being parents with our children, good partners to our significant other, good children to our aging parents or or employees in a workplace. These are skills available to everybody that cost no money, that don't take any special equipment that everybody can do. And we're just big fans of, we think the world could change with more humanity present in our personal lives and in our work lives. I think that's fantastic. It does make me think though that interdependency, many of us, myself included, my husband included too, extremely independent. And that has been such a barrier to asking for help. In some ways, that's how we grew up is to be self-reliant. And I think that's something particularly in the US culture, individualism that is there. So Kate, take me through my resistance and let's end on a what we can do to really step into this. We really wrote this book for you and for each one of you, all of your listeners. We wanted this to be something that people could pick up. And if resistance is something that you're struggling with, if there is, I don't know what my values are. Our objective with this book was that it would be cornered, that people would dog ear that thing and start where you, whoever you are, where you need and are inspired to try something different. There's a ton in this book. None of it is very complicated. I will say that. It's just not. And what's listening, it's asking questions. It's really not very complicated at all. And our hope is that people will dip back into it because there's just a ton of information in there. 
We hope that it's accessible. That's why we wrote it in this way. And I think that each one of your listeners may have a different area that they want to focus on. So just go there. I always say to people, just like when you're reading these kinds of books, just skim past the stuff that you're not interested in and hone in on those areas where you are and just start there. Just do one thing. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com for your free guides to prevent burnout. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Feel the pain.